Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Interlude Podcast. You are listening to episode 62, a conversation with Dr. Maggie Smith and Dr. Jamie Knopman. Both are incredible reproductive endocrinologists and infertility specialists. Dr. Maggie Smith is based out of Nashville, Tennessee, and Dr. Jamie Knopman is the Director of Fertility Preservation for CCRM New York. She's also the Chief Medical Officer of the Chick Mission, an amazing organization whose mission is to ensure that every young woman newly diagnosed with cancer has the option to preserve her fertility, a process that is often very daunting and very expensive. The Chick Mission has a virtual run coming up later uh, this month, and we'll talk about that uh, towards the end of the episode. On this episode, we talk about everything related to fertility and cancer. We talk about what egg preservation really is like, whether or not IVF is related to cancer risk in any way, pregnancy after cancer, exercise during egg freezing, and so much more. And with that, let's welcome Maggie and Jamie to the show and get right into it. I'm your host, Dr. Eleanor Toplinski, and I am a board-certified medical oncologist specializing in the treatment of breast and gynecologic cancers. I started the Interlude podcast as a way to share the journeys and experiences of women who are going through cancer. On this podcast, we talk about anything and everything related to the cancer journey, the treatment, and life after cancer. As a reminder, the information discussed on this podcast is not meant to serve as medical advice. Any specific medical questions should be directed to your healthcare team. Today, I'm here with Dr. Maggie Smith, and I think she goes by Dr. Maggie on all of the social media channels, and then Dr. Jamie Knopman. Welcome, guys. Thanks for joining, coming on to the show. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you for having us. Uh, So, Maggie, do you want to start and just introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do? Yeah, sure. My name is Maggie Smith. Um, Dr. Maggie was actually coined by my friend, Allison Feller, and then people just started calling me that. So it kind of stuck at the office. I don't go by that. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I am a reproductive endocrinologist and infertility specialist, and I live in Nashville, Tennessee. I just started here, graduated fellowship last year. Um, and I like to run. That's my like favorite thing to do. And I have two dogs. I don't have any kids myself, but I have two dog children. Um, it makes me so happy to hear Maggie say she's a reproductive endocrinology and infertility specialist because I knew her way back when, when she was a medical student. And I feel like I helped nurture her to where she is today. And now I tell people I wouldn't be here without Jamie (laughs) Notman. I would be I was like, it was amazing. She came in as a medical student and she was so amazing. I was like, why don't you do OB and then do infertility? That would be a great career path for you. Um, <laughs> I'm Jamie and I'm too old to be on all those great social media platforms <laughs> that Maggie's on. So I don't have any Dr. Jamie on that, but um, no, I'm a fertility specialist in New York city. I work at a place called CCRM New York. Um, at CCRM, I am the director of fertility preservation. So I see lots of women coming in to freeze their eggs electively and, uh, for a head of, uh, treatment for malignancy. I'm also the director, of uh, the chief medical officer of chick mission. Um, and in my role there, we raise funds to provide grants to women who have cancer so that they can afford, uh, egg freezing and embryo freezing. And then I'm a mom of two girls, uh, 10 and seven, who um, are really like 
my world, my everything. And like Maggie, I do like to run probably a little bit too much as it has caused me many, many injuries, but yeah, it's my me time. And that's been, you know, for many, many years. Fantastic. I do have to say, I would not be here today without Jamie. Not I, (laughs) literally met her when she was a second year fellow. And I was told her, I tell people this story all the time. Like it's really how, what you decide to go into is a little bit of like luck, I guess, or like happenstance. I met you, you were a second year fellow and yep. I was liking my OB rotation a lot. And I did one week on REI one week and I yep. happened to overlap with Jamie. And I was like, I think I like this a lot. And she's like, you should really do it. And then I <laughs> told you, I remember I said, I don't know if I can do OBGYN residency because I like to run a lot and do marathons and you go, Oh, it's fine. I did like three marathons in residency. It's so great. And that you know, was, I used to it. run. I was- remember I used to run to work. That was like when I couldn't exercise. And then the craziest thing I ever did was I would run up and down the stairs at Bellevue and Tish for like my exercise when I couldn't leave the hospital. I'd be like, well, they have like yeah. 20, they have like 20 flights of stairs. So that's yeah, it was amazing. Get, like a lot of mileage in. Yeah. I was just scared. Like I'd get to a floor that would lock me in. So I used to be like, Oh God, like, I don't want to be locked in on like the med psych ward at like Bellevue being like, somebody come save me. Yeah. Funny story about Bellevue. And I think, I mean, so for the listeners, I did my fellowship at NYU and Bellevue. And so I think we were all there at some point in our careers, maybe overlapping. But when I, my first week at Bellevue, I had a Fan, there's a family member visiting, which even seems crazy to say now in COVID times, because you just don't have random family members like wandering the halls. But there was a family member. They're like, oh, how do I get down the stairs? I just got to go down one flight. I was like, yeah, here are the stairs. Let me let you in. And the nurses were like, what are, what are you doing? And I was like, oh, I'm letting them down. They want to walk down the stairs. Why do they need an elevator? And that was when I learned you do not take the stairs at Bellevue Hospital. Yeah. No. It's so true. Yeah. But there's nothing like Bellevue training. Like you just I always oh. like, well, we saw that at Bellevue, so it must be normal. Yeah. Or you get yeah. very used to doing everything yourself. Yeah. So now I do a lot of stuff. Like I'll just start doing things myself. And they're like, no, no, we'll help you. And I was like, oh, don't worry. Like I'm very used to, <laughs> like I'm, yeah. I'm used to cleaning up my own stuff. <laughs> yeah. So true. Yeah. I know the, the cancer that we saw at Bellevue was crazy. I mean, it was just, you never, it's such good training because it prepares yeah. you for seeing all these, all these insane things. So how did you guys, you know, you do an OBGYN residency. What made you go into REI? And can you talk a little bit about what, when we talk about fertility preservation for cancer? So what does that actually mean? Like how long does it take? What, what kind of medications do people need to take? And, you know, all of that. Because I so, feel for us oncologists, it's like kind of like a great, like a black box. Like we send people to REI and we're like, okay, see you in three weeks. But I don't really know exactly what you do. So actually my path here was sort of, I took a year off between college and med school and I worked at the breast center at MSK, like in, when it used to be on 64th street. Mm-hmm. And I was a session assistant, which is basically like an admin for Dr. Heard and in mm-hmm. the chemo ward. So when I was there, I thought I want to be a breast surgeon. Like, this is exactly what I want to do. And then I went to med school and I was like, I just don't think I can do general surgery and then go to uh, breast mm-hmm. surgery. It's like too much. So I think I like women's health. I'm going to do OBGYN, but I'm really fascinated by hormones. And that was how I sort of got into fertility. Um, but then once I became a fertility doctor, let's just say I was still had this 
connection to the whole um, fertility preservation, cancer part of it. And that's why I spent a lot of time learning about how we do fertility preservation for patients who have um, a malignancy. And I've been pretty lucky to maintain a lot of relationships with previous physicians at Memorial and see a lot of um, the patients that come through. And Maggie, do you want to take away what we do? Like you want to describe what happens when they come here to us? Yeah. So usually, I mean, I, I mean, I first typically start by just presenting them their options. You know, they can do egg or embryo freezing, or, you know, if they can't do it, um, a lot of times it's really financial more than time-wise. Um, because if they're able to come to the office, especially for patients with breast cancer, they, you know, they typically aren't need to be, it's not like leukemia where they need to be admitted immediately and start on chemotherapy. Um, so I usually, you know, present the options to them. Um, and then really with cancer patients, we're able to start as soon as we can get medications to be quite honest. Um, and so there are some grant programs like Livestrong and Heartbeat that will help with getting patients medications for free. And once we can get that, we can typically start them pretty soon. Um, and the stimulation process. So that's the injections that they take. Um, so the injections are just the same hormones that your body makes. We just give it to you at a much higher dose than your body is hopefully making um, to get as many follicles, which are the little fluid filled sacs that contain an egg. We're trying to get as many of those to grow as possible. Um, and so, you know, it's really like about a nine to 11 day, sometimes longer if we're starting um, at a random part in someone's menstrual cycle, um, which often we are with cancer patients, but it's typically about, I would say it's you're at our office about two weeks, um, kind of every other day leading up to the egg retrieval. Um, but it can be done in about two to three weeks. Yeah, totally. And what are the drugs that you're giving? So we give injectable gonadotropin. So I always say to patients, our brain makes lots of different hormones, but the two that are important for fertility are LH and FSH. And we give you LH and FSH in much higher doses and at a steady state from the beginning of your menstrual cycle. So when you have a regular period, let's say, you know, you're not on fertility treatment, you're not on hormonal contraception, your body is making FSH and LH in different, like a pulsatile fashion but at different amounts. But when we do IVF or fertility preservation, we give you these doses at a steady state to stimulate your ovaries to produce multiple eggs. And I always compare it to a horse race. I don't, I don't know why I'm not a horse person, but if you think about it, like the follicles are like the horses, they all line up and they're getting ready to start the race when the period goes off. But we give you, we don't want one horse to take the lead or one egg to be ovulated. We give you the doses at a steady state. So all of these horses, AKA follicles are running along at a steady state. And then once they get to be a certain size, the follicles in your estrogen reaches a certain peak. That's when we give you your final shots, which we call the trigger shots. And that triggers maturation of the eggs. Now we've made a lot of advances in fertility treatment over the past, you know, 10 years. And now we actually give your trigger shot, especially for our cancer patients, we give something called Lupron so that you get your period five days after the egg retrieval. So you can go into any treatment you need and not feel bloated or, you know, unwell. And yeah. oftentimes for patients who have an estrogen producing tumor, we'll give you a medication called letrozole. It's an oral pill that you'll take while you're going through the fertility treatment to keep your estrogen levels down. Because I think that, you know, that's definitely a concern, right? Especially for patients who have a hormonally driven breast cancer, the thought of there's always this kind of 
scare and fear that the extra hormones are going to kind of stimulate their breast cancer to grow even in that short period of time. Yeah. People say, you know, people always ask us that. And we say that the data does not show that 10 days of, you know, elevated hormones are going to make your tumor progress. And if you look at the risk benefit ratio, a lot of women will, this is their only chance to do, you know, what they need to do to get the um, eggs and then the embryos out. But we will give letrozole even, I'll give it even to my ERPR negative patients, Mm -hmm. right? Because the thinking is, even if it's not estrogen mediated, it's probably still the same sort of risk. So we might as well keep the estrogen levels low. That makes sense. And what, what's a realistic number of eggs that you're getting at the end of one cycle? Because most people don't have the ability to do two cycles or three. So what can we expect realistically? I mean, that really depends on their age Mm -hmm. that they're coming to us at and kind of, um, what we have as reproductive endocrinologists, we have this term called ovarian reserve, which is just how we talk about the quantity and quality of your eggs. Um, so, you know, unfortunately we're born with all the eggs we'll ever have. And just, it's a war of attrition as we keep getting older. And not only does our egg quantity, <laughs> I give this talk like multiple times a day and it's always interesting. <laughs> um, not like not only is our egg quantity always going down, but the egg quality goes down as well. Um, so I would, you know, it's really hard to give a specific number just because it depends on if you're 32 or if you're 38. Mm-hmm. Those are very different kind of time points in someone's fertility continuum. Um, so yeah, it's it's kind of hard. I don't know, James. Do you have a? Yeah, I mean, I always say the more the younger you are, the more you're going to get likely, right? But the reality is, is that we have no idea what the quality of the eggs are if we're not making embryos, right? So if we're just extracting eggs, all we're ever going to be able to tell you is, hey, you know, Maggie, you got 20 eggs and we froze 15. We're not freezing based on quality. We're freezing based on egg maturity. We can give you stats and say, hey, if you're 32 and you have 15 frozen eggs, you likely have, you know, two to three viable embryos in there. But nobody can tell you for, for certain. Um, the other thing is a lot of our patients who are coming through to do this for cancer may be also coming through with a genetic mutation, BRCA, Lynch syndrome, whatever it is. So I had last week, I had a patient come through BRCA and a patient come through Lynch syndrome. And the bummer is you need a lot more eggs, right? Because these are dominant conditions. So sometimes I'll call the oncologist and be like, do you think we can just do it? What can we do it twice? Like, we'll go really quick. That way we can get to a point where we have enough that we could screen for the dominant condition as well as, you know, genetic abnormalities. So is that routine now to screen for things like, and and this is not even in just fertility preservation for cancer, but for anyone, are you screening for things like BRCA or Lynch or other genetic, you know, inherited conditions? It's a good question. So I am a little bit hesitant to do this. We can But I feel if I'm going to test someone for a BRCA mutation, I better be able to counsel them on what that exactly means. So last week I had a patient who was like, I want to be BRCA tested. My mom died of ovarian cancer and her mom had breast cancer. And I said, have you seen anyone at MSK or a cancer hospital in like an early screening program? Because if I test her for that and she's BRCA1 positive, like I'm not fully equipped to then discuss with her the ramifications. So she said, I haven't but I will, but I just want to know because it just makes my life easier to come one place. And I was like, okay, fine, we'll do it. 
But in general, I don't offer to patients. When a patient gives me their family history, I always ask about cancers Mm -hmm. and I will send them to Memorial for genetic counseling. If I'm like, oh, wow, you have three family members who had colon cancer. You should go speak to someone because you may have a genetic mutation. And then if they do have that genetic mutation, you can, when you harvest eggs, you can select the eggs that don't have the mutation. Not the eggs, but the embryos. Yeah, Yeah. you can. Yep. So uh, like I'm thinking of this one patient, I just called her with her results yesterday. Her mom had uterine cancer and I think it was the sister had colon cancer. She wound up finding out she was Lynch syndrome. So when we spoke about it, I said, you do realize we can screen you for screen your embryos. And she was like, no, I had no idea. So we went ahead and she made what's called a probe and we screened her embryos for Lynch. And now we have uh, one embryo that we can use. That's, I mean, that's huge. Yeah, yeah. It's actually pretty incredible. And I don't know, Jamie, if you know this, I mean, last I checked, some insurance companies weren't covering that for, which is kind of crazy to me. If you're an insurance company thinking of all of the screening and testing you'll need to do down the road for someone with Lynch or BRCA versus the embryo biopsy and testing. But I guess they don't see it that way. <laughs> it's so insane to me. I'm like, you're, you're so foolish. You're missing <laughs> You know, yeah. The truth, whatever. Yeah. No, a lot yeah. of times they won't, but, but patients will say it's interesting because if a patient has not been affected by BRCA or something, if they're no one in their family had cancer, a lot of times they'll just sort of blow it off. They'll be like, Oh, whatever. I'm BRCA, but like nobody I know has cancer and they won't think about testing, but if they've been affected by it, either themselves or someone in their family, hands down, they're like, Nope, I want to screen this out. I don't want anyone to go through this. It's been a nightmare. And you talk about, you know, eggs versus embryos. So if you have a newly diagnosed woman with cancer who's coming and she's doing egg, you know, harvesting and preservation, and let's say she has a partner, does it make sense to make embryos at that time? Or do we just save it and do it later? Like what, what's that process like? This is a great question and one that we talk about all the time. So I have always been a big fan of eggs because I think eggs give you autonomy, right? And we know the world is a messed up place. Who knows where relationships will go, how things are going to end. And I think eggs in many ways are just simpler, right? Because they're yours. Nobody can take them away. They're, you know, there's no joint custody. With that being said, embryos are going to give you a lot more information about your future, and about the health of those eggs, right? So if you are, you know, let's say you're in a relationship or you're married and you were trying to get pregnant or you're going to get pregnant, try and get pregnant in a couple months, that's when I'm like, let's make the embryos because you're already at that point where you're thinking of having a child. But when I see couples come in who say, hey, like we've been dating for a few years or engaged, I'm like, just make the eggs. Don't, yeah. don't, it's too, it's too much. Yeah, I, I usually counsel like, I usually tell them if there were such a strong difference between the success of egg freezing versus embryo freezing, aside from the fact that I just can't tell you, will those eggs make a baby? And, you know, I can give you a better sense with the embryos, although I don't know for sure if those embryos will make a baby. I mean, hopefully, um, but if there were a huge, huge difference, and of course I would say embryos, but otherwise I think the reproduct maintaining your reproductive autonomy is much higher priority. I think, especially when you're faced with the new cancer diagnosis. I think it can really, I mean, you might know this better than I would, but can really maybe derail some relationships or just shake things up a bit. So I, I usually, I usually counsel for eggs unless they're in a similar situation where they were wanting to have kids already, you know, at that point. 
Yeah, I think that's, I like that term or productive autonomy, because we, you know, I think some of the things that I see is that people come in, um, I see a lot of young women with cancer. And so we'll see people come in and either they, let's say they have kids, it's one of those things where they weren't sure if they wanted to have another one. But now that they're being told that they may become, you know, go into early menopause or become infertile with this cancer treatment, it's like, you have to make a decision, you know, within a, a week, essentially, and that becomes really hard. Or I see people who kind of were like, well, I wasn't sure if I ever wanted to have kids. But now that I'm being told that I can't, you know, that or that I won't be able to kind of, it's hard, I think, to make such major life decisions in the course of a week after you've just been handed a cancer diagnosis. Completely. I, I think it's just like the world. And, and I have seen this now twice in my career, where the relationship didn't go the right way and the partner won't like agree to giving the female partner the embryos and she's in menopause and like he has the same rights that she does you know so it's horrible and you feel so badly but like you can't change it yeah we're also seeing people who don't so I see also some people who don't want to go through the process. They've just been diagnosed and they're like, I want to get started with chemo or surgery. I don't, I don't want to wait. I just want to move forward. Um, and so in those cases, we've been doing a lot more Lupron or Zolidex during chemotherapy, um, which has been shown in small studies, but to improve the rate of natural conception after chemotherapy, it's not anywhere near as good as egg preservation, obviously, but it's kind of something that we can do that's in the middle if they don't want to do the, you know, the weeks of fertility preservation. Yeah. I always tell people like, if that's an option, even after you freeze your eggs, your embryos, do it. Like, yeah. you don't know, you know, maybe, maybe that'll also help you. I think there's, I mean, Lupron, we all know is not fun, <laughs> it's not a fun medicine, uh, but you know, if they can help you. Yeah. I'm like, as long as I tell them, even if they do this, they should, you know, if that's available to them, yeah. I, I would do it. Why not? You know? Um, so, and I think just kind of to your point of not wanting to put off treatment, I don't know how long it necessarily takes to get into chemo, but I do. I've had a couple of patients who have come through that, like they're getting a lot of their, a lot of their scans, they get port placement, everything while they're doing STEM with me. And like, even they'll get the port placement, like the day before their retrieval. And then, you know, so it, usually it doesn't seem like it delays their care too much, um, at least yeah. in the, for the most part. No, it really doesn't. And I think the key is wherever people get treated, is that something that needs to be recognized essentially from the day you're diagnosed. Yeah. So, you know, even before you're meeting with any of the doctors, if you have like a nurse navigator or someone on your team, who's going to say, look, I don't know what your treatment's going to be, but let's, if you're thinking about fertility, let's get you in right away so that you could then meet, you know, start meeting and having the consultation while you're kind of undergoing everything. But I also tell patients that three weeks, four weeks, whatever it is, is not going to make a difference in your cancer. If the cancer is growing that quickly in two to three weeks, our chemo is not going to work. I mean, at that point, it's so aggressive that I don't have anything that's going to be, yeah, you know, it just don't see, we just don't see breast cancer growing that fast. Like you said, Maggie, this isn't leukemia. Um, yeah. you know, and those are complete other drugs and other, you know, yeah, whole other thing. Yeah. So let's talk about, so the other question that I get all the time is people who are newly diagnosed and who did IVF in the past and they want to know, 
did their IVF increase their risk of breast We get asked this all the time. And I always say, no, I say that there is no evidence that IVF causes breast cancer. What we do know is if you have an underlying cancer, might it bring it out? Like bring it, you may be diagnosed within the year post the cancer, uh, post the treatment, but it didn't necessarily cause it. It just may have brought it to the forefront sooner. The patients who I get somewhat concerned about are the patients who are doing 12, 13, 14, Mm -hmm. 15 cycles. Because again, there's no data that it's dose dependent, but I think as like, as a physician, I'm like, can't be good to do all of those cycles, right? Mm -hmm. So I try and say to patients, like, we got to get off the merry-go-round at some point, right? Like we have to find, if it's not working, whatever it is we're doing, we have to, we have to call it and think about the next step because it's probably not good for your health. Yeah. Yeah. And are the drugs that you use for IVF different or more intense than the drugs you would use for, let's say, IUI? Yes. Yeah. With IUI, you're typically only like taking an oral medication. Um, and we're trying to only get you to ovulate a few follicles, not trying to get every single horse to get, as, as Jamie said, to the, to the, I'm using that one from now on. I like that. Good, right? um, it's a good one. Um, we're only trying to get like two or three, maybe depending, yeah. kind of depending on the age and whatnot. And um, the two medications we give are Clomid and Letrozole or Fumara, some people call it. So it's, and it's only for five days. So it's a lot less of, you know, stimulation. Fair enough. Um, so before we kind of get to the Q and A, let's talk about the chick mission and this awesome virtual race that is happening next week. Yeah. Great. So, um, Chick Mission was started by a woman named Amanda Rice, who's like the most amazing, badass woman I've ever met. Um, And her number two, Tracy Weiss, another amazing woman. Um, And Amanda was diagnosed with breast cancer and she was, she froze her eggs, but was very surprised at the cost and how little coverage there was there. And she took this and it motivated her to start the Chick Mission. And the goal of the Chick Mission is to raise money to provide grants to young women Um, who are going to freeze their, to undergo fertility preservation ahead of treatment. There has always been Livestrong, or we used to call it Fertile Hope. But the problem with Livestrong and Fertile Hope was that the the requirements for the financial requirements were actually, like most people were above the level Mm -hmm. of which they would cover it, especially in a city like New York. So it it really didn't help many people. So that's where Chick Mission came in. Um, I joined because Amanda's like very public about this. I was her doctor. And so she asked me to come on board as the um, chief medical officer. And over the past few years, we've done, we're up to way over a hundred scholarships at this point, but um, it's not just the scholarships. Amanda and Tracy have made it their life mission to go and like advocate behalf of survivors or cancer um, patients everywhere. And so they go to different government legislation Uh to try and pass laws. I say that they were very involved in helping making Cuomo pass the uh, surrogacy law in New York because they were up there in Albany all the time. And so they're in Austin now. Yeah. They're in Austin right now, like fighting. But um, (laughs) so what we, we had, we've done different events, but we figured that um, a run outside would be something that anyone can enjoy because running is obviously important to a lot of us. And we varied the distances so that kids could do it with their parents and not feel, you know, like it wasn't too far. 
And where can people go to sign up or to get more information about the race? Um, so we can, I can send you the link and we can put it up on a website, okay. but essentially anyone can register and you can run either 1K, which is 0.6 miles, 6K, which is 3.7 miles or 12K, which is about six plus miles um, anytime between Mother's Day and May 18th, which just happens to be my birthday. It was like in honor of, you know, because running was my thing. And um, you don't, you know, you can register and then you can fundraise or not fundraise, whatever you want and come out and run with us. That's really and I think cool. if you go to like the Chick Mission Instagram, um, there should be a link in their bio, or I think it's uh, racelikeagirl.org is the okay. URL. I'll, I'll link all of that so people can sign right, up. Right, Maggie. There goes Maggie with her social media <laughs> skills. <laughs> if there's yeah. one thing I'm good at, it's being a millennial. <laughs> um, but that's such a great organization. I mean, it's, yeah, facility preservation is so expensive. And on top of all of the costs that come with cancer and insurance. And if it's early in the year and you haven't met your deductible, you're paying thousands upon thousands of dollars. And often even insurance, if you have insurance company coverage for fertility, they will say, well, you haven't been trying for six months or a year. Um, so you actually aren't infertile. You don't need this. This is elective. And yep. I think last I checked, generally cancer wasn't elective. So it's just, it's really heartbreaking that that is how the world of healthcare works. And, you know, a lot of places, like when I was in LA and practicing at USC, I would see a lot of patients from CHLA that were undergoing like bone marrow transplants, like very like for sickle cell a lot and stuff like that. And they have no means to pay for any, you know, and it's just so sad um, that this isn't covered more frequently. And I also think the one thing Chick Mission has done, which it, it's created a community of in many ways, people going through similar processes, right? So Amanda and Tracy have made themselves who are both cancer survivors have made themselves incredibly available mm -hmm. to the women who are going through this. And like anything you do in life, I think having a community makes it easier because you sort of, you're like, oh, this person went through that. That person's helping me do this. And so I think that's an added sort of benefit of Chick Mission because so many of us understand what it's like to be a patient. And I think that's helpful. No, I, I think it's wonderful to have it. I mean, it's such a grassroots movement, but you know, a lot of my patients will meet each other. They'll meet it during radiation. They'll meet, you know, waiting for the doctor. But I think it can be really hard to find someone who's going through fertility at the same time. Yeah. And it's nice to have that community of people that, understand the stress and the fear and, and all of that that happens. Well, I will be running and hopefully everyone will join us. Yes. Um, all right. So let's do, let's wrap up with just some questions. I'm just going to pull them up here. Bear with me for one second. Um, all right. So I think a lot of these questions we answered, but um, I will, there's a couple that we didn't get. Okay. So number one, we talked about this kind of any organizations that help women with grants for surrogacy for breast cancer, you know, is that different? Yeah, that's a hard one. You know, actually it's a, it's a great question and we don't do it at Chick Mission. And I actually don't know anyone who does do it. It's a good thing. I'm going to ask Amanda that because surrogacy is so expensive and a lot of patients are not able to carry immediately after their diagnosis and mm -hmm. if they don't have a friend or family member that wants to carry, it can be an issue. Yeah. But I don't know of any grants out mm -hmm. there. 
Because one of the things that we didn't talk about is that, you know, even after you're done with chemo, if you have to be on tamoxifen or any other endocrine therapy, you can't, we don't recommend that you, you, we want you to be on it for at least, you know, a year and a half or two years before you even attempt, Yeah, you know, any sort of pregnancy yeah. um, that can, you know, the time can add up, right? If, it, yeah. if you think about it. Um, okay. This says, um, so this kind of we answered, but IVF or NIPT testing um, for, I'm sure you know what that Hopefully, you know what that is. Non-invasive yeah. prenatal testing. Yeah. yeah. For patients post-chemo wanting to conceive, I worry about genetic abnormalities. So I think what they're asking is like, if you had chemo, you know, are you at higher risk for having, like, do you do genetic testing, like screening for the embryos, which I think you said we do for everything now at this point. For most patients, um, you are doing the chromosomal screening of the embryos for a vast majority. And then we do still recommend, recommend, even if they do the screening to then get when they're pregnant, get, um, genetic testing. Um, so yeah, I don't, I mean, at least to my knowledge that I don't know any data that shows that having chemotherapy increases your rate of like chromosomal abnormalities of the embryo in the, not if you're doing it in the, like, not if you wait the appropriate amount of time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, think there are certain drugs that we give like Herceptin and Tamoxifen that you yeah. have to be off. You have to have the washout period. And I tell people that this is when you really have to listen to your doctors for the exact time, you know, because mm-hmm. you don't want to do it early. They have a lot of birth defects and stuff like that. If you can right. see yeah. those drugs. Um, okay. I think a lot of these we answered. Here's another one. Um, so this one is do you have to take letrozole during fertility preservation? It tanked my estrogen level. So that's kind of a little bit opposite of, you know. So I mean, you don't have to, but if your estrogen levels are low and you're on letrozole, that's okay. Like it, they should be low on estrogen yeah. letrozole. So when we do stimulation and we dose your medications, we have to take that into consideration, right? Like we have to be like, oh, her estrogen's low because she's on letrozole. She's only going to peak at 400 instead of peaking at, 1400 or whatever it is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But yeah, we, of course you don't have to, you know, you don't have yeah. to take, but we recommend it. Um, and then the last question we can answer, and I think this is kind of more for, for both everyone is, so is it safe to get pregnant, you know, after treatment or after five years of endocrine therapy? Um, you know, from an oncology perspective, you know, we, every, everyone is different. I think it depends on, your tumor, you know, the stage of your cancer, the treatment that you got, where you are, you know, your age, morbidities, medical issues, all of that. But in general, um, we are absolutely fine with people either coming off endocrine therapy or doing it after five years to try to conceive and have a baby if that's something that is important to them. I'm a big believer of, you know, I'm not going to tell you, no, you can't do something if this is the most important thing in your life that you want to have a baby. Yeah. yeah. Go ahead. Jamie. I mean, I always say there's no reason, like if I have a patient who had, let's say Dr. Rubson at a high, you know, Adria at a high dose, I may say like, you need to see a cardiologist to make sure mm-hmm. you have your cardiac function is fine. But as long as you're cleared by a high risk doctor, mm-hmm. I don't think there's any reason why you wouldn't be able to carry. Yeah. I agree. As long as they've had like the necessary counseling from like a high risk OB or whatever, and, and their oncologist or whatever it may be based on what kind of chemotherapy they got, 
um, as long as they're informed and, and everyone's on board, I don't see why, you know, yeah. can't say and no. This really just highlights that cancer treatment, regardless of cancer type, is such a multidisciplinary field that it's not one person calling the shots. It is a team of doctors that all have to, and providers that all have to work together. Very much. Totally. I agree. Um, is there anything that before we wrap up, is there anything that we did not talk about anything that you, any wisdom you want to impart? Mm-hmm. Um, I always, I say the older I get, the more I perspective I have, but I always say it's a journey, right? Like all of this, it's a, it's a marathon. It's not a sprint. And like, we all get, you know, we hit the bumps and we like, think we're never going to be able to get back up again but then you gather your strength and you get back up. And that's what we're here for as your providers to help you navigate that pathway. And so even in like the darkest hours, I always say like, it'll be okay. One day at a time, one step at a time and, and we'll get you there. And like, we'll, we'll help you no matter what, if you hang with us, we'll, we'll be able to help you become a parent. It may not always be in the way you envisioned, but you'll become a parent. And, and that's really at the end of the day, I think what everyone's dream is. Yeah. And for me, I mean, my, I think social media has a lot of downsides, but there are also <laughs> a lot of upsides. Um, and there are a lot of people that connect through social media, Instagram, whatever it is, TikTok. I'm not as cool on the TikTok now, but um, it's that connect on social media that have similar conditions um, or some or going through similar things. And I think it can really help. Um, like conceptualize your experience and also help you just kind of like have someone who's going through the same thing. So I think like like the internet can be a scary place and full of misinformation, but if used appropriately, I think you can find some really good. I mean, I've met my best, a lot of my best friends from (laughs) social media, so it can, it can work out pretty well. (laughs) There's a huge cancer community on social media. And again, I think sometimes people can get caught up in, well, my, you know, I talked to someone on Facebook and they did this and why am I not doing this? But in general, and I always tell people everyone's cancer is different, um, but in general, the ability to connect with other similar, you know, people going through similar situations, really, especially in places where you might not have access to those people mm-hmm. around you is, is huge. And especially during COVID when everything went dark in terms of, uh, you know, in-person support groups and, and all of that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. My other uh, thing would be to find a good life mentor. Cause I go to Jamie for everything from <laughs> like clothes, dating, calling her about like, what do I do with this? Yeah. So it, it worked out. I'm like, good. always like Maggie, know your worth. I'm like, you are awesome. Like anyone would be lucky to have you. Yeah. Like, yes. Yes. So life mentor, know your life worth. Mentor. And it's a journey. I love it. Yeah. That's it. We yeah. got it. They put it on a t-shirt. <laughs> yeah. That's why. Well, Maggie, we compare everything in life to a marathon. So I'm always like, For sure. you're at mile 22. Do you quit at mile 22? I'm like, absolutely not. <laughs> yes. No, I do. I mean, I, you know, in patients who do run, it is a very useful yeah. analogy and they like get it. Um, and they're like, I'm like, you know, this is like, you know, like, especially when they're, go- when they're going through a cycle, I'll say like, prepare yourself. There are a lot of ups and downs, even if you're doing it for fertility preservation. And I'm like, you know, it's like mile eight and it's just, you know, not going great for you, but you don't know mile 16 might be good. You know, yeah, I know. I do. <laughs> um, actually one last question, like exercise during fertility preservation. Yes. No running. Yeah. I allow it because 
as an exercise addict myself, I realize how important it is. I just say modify what you're doing, right? Yeah. Like, I, and I will, I will literally at every scan say to a patient, okay, now you have to stop running. Okay. Yeah. Now you have to stop spinning. Mm-hmm. Like I'll make it because I always joke around because my older daughter is preterm. I had all these regulation restrictions for my younger and my OB used to be like, now you can't run. Okay. Your cervix is this. Now you can only spin. Like, so I do that for patients because I realize for a lot of us, it's very important. And if we can't yeah. do that, it drives you crazy. Mm-hmm. It does. And yeah. I'll have to like, I haven't had cancer, but I have frozen my eggs twice. And I was just told like, yeah, you start, you stop med, you start meds and you have to stop exercising. And I was like, well, that's crazy. I'm not doing that. <laughs> and so I actually think I texted Jamie and her, um, uh, her best friend, like colleague, uh, Shiva. And I was like, this is nuts, right? Like I can, and I ran through day six of STEM. And then I'll have to say that your body, de- you just kind of start to feel your ovaries and you're like, Oh, this doesn't feel good. Um, but yeah, I, I walk, I did a lot of walking, yeah. a lot of just like long walks and it made, it made a huge difference, I think. And I didn't torse yeah. my ovary. So it's a plus. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we, we are huge fans of exercise during chemo. I actually have a clinical trial using person, virtual personal training in the Peloton platform for people yeah. on chemo, um, for breast cancer. So we are huge, huge exercise fans in the oncology. Yeah. I think it's so good. Yes. Same. So um, I'm a huge fan. So before we wrap up, where can people find you on social media if you're on social media and they want to connect with you? Wait, I'm like, I am, but I don't even know what my social media name is. What I is think it? I, I tagged know. you and then it was like, hasn't even seen it. So much you probably <laughs> use it. I think it's just my name. I think it's just Jamie yeah. Notman, I think. Yes, you have know. at Jamie Notman and you also have your East Meets West fertility handle. Oh yes, you're right. I do have that. Yeah, yeah. So it, that one is at, EMW, like East meets West fertility. Okay. Correct. You're right. You're right. You can also find Jamie. Um, I know CCRM has its own social media and I think CCRM New York, uh, CCRM underscore New York has its own. I'd have to check. Oh, we we <laughs> might, I have no idea yeah. about that. Yeah. Okay. You're way better than I am on all this. I, I don't really know. <laughs> yes. Uh, and then, um, I am at M so it's at MBS, my initials, um, thinks like you're thinking, um, that's my handle for Instagram, Twitter, TikTok. Not that I do anything on TikTok. I just look at it. Um, and I have a website, MeggieSmithMD.com. And Jamie has a website too, EastMeetsWestFertility.com. You're right. We do. I, f- I forget about that. I forget. Yeah. We, we started this. Yeah. Yeah. Long story. Next, next podcast. We can go into it. Yes. Yes. Thank you guys so much. This was fantastic. And I think yeah. it's so fun. Resource. If you enjoyed the episode or other episodes of the podcast, I would be honored if you would leave a rating and or review over on Apple Podcast, as that is the best way to help me grow the show and to bring it to new listeners. And you can find me at Dr. Toplinski on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter. Have a wonderful weekend, and I will see all of you next week.